welcome to the Philia podcast. Philia means daughter. We are the daughters of the women who came before us and we fight so that our daughters may be free. We are a women-led volunteer organization. Our vision is a world free from patriarchy where all women and girls are liberated. We seek to contribute to the women's liberation movement by building sisterhood and solidarity among women locally, nationally, and globally. By amplifying the voices of women, particularly those less often heard or purposefully silenced, and by defending women's human rights. Our podcast seeks to shed light on some of the most pressing issues facing women and girls around the world. Please take from them what you can. In sisterhood and in solidarity, the Philia team. Hello, Philia. Today, I have Mia Doran with me. Mia Doran is a sex trade survivor and an outspoken abolitionist activist from the Republic of Ireland. Uh, Mia, thank you for accepting our invitation to the interview. Please tell our audience a little bit more about you. First of all, how did you get into abolitionist activism? I got into it about 11 years ago in 2011. So I got out of the sex trade and I moved to Berlin. And while I was in Berlin, I had this like um, realization that everything that happened to me was actually not okay. Like being removed from the situation or being removed from even, because I wasn't involved in it very much. It wasn't my daily life. Um, But being out of the city where it all happened, having to be just with myself made me have to kind of look at what what has happened to me. And I got into a relationship when I was in Berlin that also showed me myself in a different way. And I kind of started realizing, like, I actually hate all those men. <laughs> and the sex trade is a really bad thing. Now, this was a growing awareness. It wasn't like, poof, suddenly I realized. It was a growing awareness of why I felt so resentful and why I kind of felt so insecure and so down in myself all the time. And I also realized that porn is really bad. That was, I started reading more about pornography and watching videos about porn and stuff. I came across Shelley Lubin, who's now dead, and her work. And I just realized, oh my God, I was trying to make the existence of pornography something okay to coexist with. And I don't have to. It was seeing somebody else say, you don't have to. And then I found Gail Dines and so on. And I think Berlin was when I really, I was always, I always called myself a feminist, but I really became a feminist then, like a radical feminist then. Um was I just started educating myself more. But then I came back to Dublin and I was back in Dublin. So I was back with the memories and the um, places and whatnot. And I was like, I cannot be here and not do anything about the sex trade. So that's when I started reaching out to journalists because there was a lot of articles going around at the time. I would say very biased articles, quoting certain factions of society and I was getting really frustrated reading these, calling it sex work and so on. And I was like, it isn't work. And I was like, oh, these people just don't understand. I just, of course, now that was so naive. Now I know they do understand. But I was like, I just need to tell these journalists the truth. And it was a very dang- kind of dangerous psychological time for me because I was kind of reaching out to these random people who knew well what they were doing, you know. Um, but then I came across this campaign called Turn Off the Red Light that had just started and um, connected with them. I was writing a blog called Secret Diary, Diary of a Dublin Call Girl. That was kind of my main work because that blew up. 
this was before the I joined the campaign or anything. Um, and that blog really blew up and it was quite frightening. It was anonymous, of course. And it was a place for me just to vent all my stuff into and all my anger, really. I had so much anger into and really a place for me to explore my own thoughts and feelings and my own story and get my head around it. But have it be not just me on my own or me with a therapist or something. It was like have it be acknowledged by people and to realise the impact of it, that people were like saying, I've changed my entire mind about the sex trade now. And people were shocked at things, certain things like review websites and stuff. People were shocked about that and they didn't know. So that was really that was really the first thing I did when I came back to Dublin. I just had to find a place to, I mean, be acknowledged, I think, or have what happened to be be acknowledged. And then I joined that, I joined the campaign, but I was kind of involved, sort of involved in the campaign. And um, I met Rachel Moore and my good friend, uh, the author of Paid For, via my blog. And um, yeah, and then I was just doing bits and bobs over the years um, to try and get the Nordic model into Ireland, which we did in 2017. And yeah, that's, that's how I got into it. <laughs> One of your last projects, it was, uh, it was really significant for me, your uh, book, Any Girl. I have read it recently and I couldn't put it down until I finished. You know, it one of those books you, you cannot stop reading. Mm-hmm. As a sex trade survivor and abolitionist myself, I identify with every word there. Mm-hmm. But uh, I guess you didn't write that book mainly for people like me. Uh, so... Who is the target audience for this book, the real target audience? And what message did you want to convey to them? Mm. Um, yeah, my well, my main target audience, I think, is young women. Well, that's who I, well, I don't know if it's a target audience, but that's who I'd like to read it. Are young women like me when I was 25 in Berlin, realizing I don't have to accept this as the status quo. I don't have to accept sex workers work and I just have to accept that that's just tough for me that I had a sh- such a shit experience but like I just have to accept that this is an okay thing in the world and I just have to accept that pornography is an okay thing in the world. I want young women to realise that they don't have to accept certain things. That they don't have to make things be okay for themselves. Even If they're not, they don't have to be involved in the sex trade, it's just, or anything like that or OnlyFans or whatever. Just any young woman to realise I can say no to certain things. I don't have to give in to be loved, to be liked, to belong, to have a sense of worth. Um, I can resist certain very normalized thoughts and ideas we have in society, what it is to be a woman and what's expected of us and what's expected of men. I can resist that. I want young women to be empowered by my book, to feel like actually I have things to say and I'm allowed to say them. And I'm allowed to set the terms and conditions around how I go through the world, not our patriarchal system or what others think is expected of a woman. Um, yeah, I think that that's kind of the main thing. There's so many reasons and so many audiences for the book. The main thing would have been for me back then. Do you know, I would have liked to have read a book like mine back then. Also, obviously, I want people who have influenced in various countries to try and change the law to so that they're more aware of what is actually happening in the sex trade because most people have an idea about it. And it comes from social media or it comes from uh, films or it comes from pop culture or it comes from TV shows or whatever. That has nothing to do with the actual reality of the sex trade. So that's another reason I wrote it was that we could bring more awareness to the general public, but also people of influence who can make change happen in various countries as well. Now in your answer, you have mentioned uh, that you don't have to accept uh, prostitution as work. You don't have to accept pornography as work. 
But what actually makes prostitution different from blue-collar jobs? Some people think it's a matter of conditions. If we improve the conditions in prostitution or in pornography, it will become yet another decent blue-collar job. Would you agree with that? Yeah, no. And so um, you can't make sex be a job because it's sex. And that's really all there is to it. Like, you can't make sex be a job because we're talking about sex. For me, that's the end of it. You know, um, it's like, because it's part of who we are, me making a coffee for someone as a barista or me um, doing whatever job, right, is not my soul. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's not, it's not, I'm not giving an organ to somebody to do a job. I don't know how to explain this because it, we're talking about sex, so it cannot be a job. It's like I write in the book in my in my attempts to try and make this make sense because it, for me it's so obvious. It's like thinking you can buy somebody's taste in music. It's like, well, I'm going to pay you to like this kind of music, like, or I'm going to pay you to like this kind of food. Or I'm going to pay you to like whatever taste in whatever we have. You can't do that. That's not something that can be bought. Um, and it's not something you can have conditions around. Like I'm going to pay you to like this piece of music. <laughs> and we're going to put conditions around that to make that be a normal job. I know this sounds mental, but this is kind of how this is kind of how it resonates for me. That that, OK, yeah, so I'll pretend I like this kind of music for this much money. And then I get rated and reviewed online for how much, how well I pretended I liked that piece of music. It's as ridiculous as arguing that as a job. Do you know what I mean? It's as ridiculous as that because we're talking about sexuality. It's sexuality. It's not, it's not a produce in the same way me. Of course, of course. Yeah, of course. I should say you cannot make someone uh, like music uh, they, they don't like or be uh, physically attracted to someone that they're, they're, they're not attracted. But uh, you won't be traumatized by pretending that you like uh, some other music. Yeah, that's very you, you will You will be traumatized by unwanted sex by pretending that you like it. Why? Yeah, you'll be traumatized by that because it's unwanted sex. And we all understand what unwanted sex is. Another word for that is rape. We all understand that. Um, but when there's money involved... People suddenly don't seem to make that connection of what unwanted sex is bad for you. But if you're getting paid for it, then suddenly it's okay. Regardless of how much you're getting paid, the unwanted sex remain. Even if in your head you're going, which is what I did for four years. I was like, this is fine. I, I consented to that because I did. I consented to sex for this much money or that particular thing I don't really want to do for that much money. Um, cognitively in my head I'm saying this is fine it'll be over in an hour I'll get some money I'll do this with that money this is all okay it's worth it the body operates doesn't operate in the mind it doesn't operate intellectually it operates via so it's the nervous system receives the unwanted sex the body receives it and the body is the thing that gets traumatized our mind doesn't get traumatized our body gets traumatized our nervous system gets traumatized and that is what feeds into our mind then so no matter how we think about something, whether we're thinking sex work is work and this is my job and this is fine, the body is the thing that's getting traumatized and that, that's where we live out our lives from. It doesn't matter how we're thinking about it. It's like a woman in a, in a relationship with an abusive man and she's, she's saying, it's okay, he loves me really, blah, 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 blah. She's getting traumatized anyway. Whether she's saying, this is all okay, he's going to apologize and everything's going to be okay again. 
she's still getting traumatised. And we all understand that when it comes to domestic abuse. We understand that we've got compassion for her. But when it comes to money, it's like something happens for us and we're like, well, you got compensated. So what's the problem? It's a job. It's a job you just didn't really like. No, it's a, it's a job that traumatised me and it was rape, actually. You know that uh, many people say that uh, I, I, I encounter them every, every day. People who claim that comparing prostitution to rape uh, diminishes rape. But unfortunately, there are enough women who have been through both and uh, can compare. So what are your insights about this comparison? Uh, comparison? Because they say rape means you didn't, uh, you didn't even uh, have a chance to agree. In prostitution, you have a, a chance to agree or disagree. Yeah, so it's like, it's not a legal rape. In my situation, right? It's not a legal rape because I said, yeah, okay, I'll do that. That's fine. I consented. I gave my consent. But when we're talking about consent just means yes or no. It doesn't mean I gave my consent. I agreed. I acquiesced. I complied or I didn't. It doesn't go into why we complied. So you can get raped and still say yes to sex because you didn't want to have it. It's not legal rape, but it's moral rape because the man knows you don't want to have sex. Otherwise, he wouldn't be paying you for sex. He knows that. He knows it's not actual. You don't actually want to have sex with them. So I don't buy into that thing of um, it diminishes rape. It doesn't. I was raped um, when I was 16. And I'm, I'm far more, tra- I mean, not that it matters, but I'm far more traumatized by what happened to me in the sex trade than, and when I was being abused than, uh, than, that, than that rape. I'm not saying that means anything, but that's just how it is for me. Um. But I say that I was willingly raped for four years in the sex trade. I offered myself up to be raped, not knowing that's what I was doing. Uh, Rape is sex, is unwanted sex, and that's what's happening in the sex trade. Um, I'm not telling everybody in in prostitution that they're all getting raped. I'm not, I wouldn't say that. Because you don't want to come down on someone and say, this is what's happening to you. That's infantilizing and it's it's patronizing and, and actually it's just not helpful because they're just going to fight back against that. But that is what it is. I mean, taking out about how people feel about it, unwanted sex is rape, prostitution is unwanted sex, so it's rape. And the men know, it's not like the men know full well that, they, that the woman doesn't want to have sex with them. It's not like, it's not like they're deluded, I don't think. This was a very important clarification because... Uh... Just like you said, you you understand something very clearly about the psychology of prostitution, but some uh, sometimes it is so challenging to make it approachable to to the general public. And uh, your book is very important because it talks a lot about the psychology of prostitution, about the issues that I think every survivor struggles with at some point of time, like uh, questions like. How did we get there? Why did we agree to it? Or maybe it was beneficial in some way and we deny it now. Why didn't we live right away? And the, I feel that the difficulty in understanding the psychology behind the mechanism of the sex trade causes some of the public to keep a distance from us. So let's talk briefly about the hidden means of soliciting and grooming that uh, bring women into the industry. Because the public often says, they didn't keep you there by force. Why did you choose it? Why didn't you leave? So what would you tell them? 
Well, I can only speak to my own experience, but um, yeah, it's a very long story, but I'll try and keep it short. So after I was raped, a man came into my life and he groomed me via text messaging. And I spent three years seeing him on and off every now and then. And it wasn't part of my daily life. It wasn't part of my weekly life even. It wasn't there enough for me to break away from. It was kind of in the background and it wasn't difficult to coexist with. Because the first time I met him, so he groomed me for about a year. Then I met him. And then when I was leaving his house, he gave me a hundred pounds and he said, this is pocket money. So money was never spoken about until this moment. So I was 17 years old and I took the money and I was thrilled. I was like, it's hundred pounds. This is brilliant. I can, you know, buy stuff. It's great. When you're 17, when you're 17, hundred pounds, it's like a lot of money. It's like a million pounds. So... I was delighted. And in that moment, everything that had happened before that completely got glossed over. It was like I'd been compensated for what had happened. The reason I was so attached to this man, attached is not the right word. The reason why I was so sucked in before I even met him was because my sexuality had been so broken by being raped that this man giving me attention felt good. It felt like this broken part of me was getting attention at last. Even if it was really shady, not nice attention, because he was very controlling, dominating, powerful. Um, I'd have to text him back by a certain time, that kind of thing. I knew it was sexual from the very beginning. He was interested in me having a school uniform and so on. Um, but none of that put me off because this part of me that was so broken and so unseen and unwitnessed, because nobody knew I'd been raped. This part of me was finally, this broken part of me, this my broken sexuality was finally being acknowledged and seen and valued. So when I met him, it was, I'm not even going to get into what happened. It was really weird. And then I was leaving and he gave me the money. And then it was like, oh my God, this is how much I'm worth. This is how much my sexuality is worth. I'm important, you know. I was 17. And then I left and then I continued seeing him. And then for three years, every now and then I'd meet him in hotel rooms around Dublin. And every time he, the money would be left for me, he used to make me wear this like pornified school uniform. And he'd leave it on the in the bathroom of the hotel room and the money would be on top of it. And that's um that's what we carried on. We never spoke about the money again. And it was a hundred pounds every time. So that is how money became the thing. If he hadn't paid me, I don't know what would have happened. I'd say I might have I would I got sick of him eventually. Because he wasn't a nice person, obviously. But I got sick of him eventually and got away from him. But it might have happened a lot earlier if the money hadn't been involved because I needed to feel like I had self-worth and I needed to feel like I was valued. And that really was the hook for me that I kept. I didn't think about it. I was like, this is fine. And then eventually it just became a job. And he sent me to this old man friend of his in a hotel. And um, I didn't know this man. I knew he was going to pay me a hundred pounds. And... This was the first, this, so this felt like a job. It felt like I was going to this place for this time, for this amount of money. This is now a job. So I did that. That was horrendous. He was so abusive. It was absolutely horrific. He beat me up with a belt. It was, it was awful. And in that moment, I remember lying, lying on the bed. He put me in this position and then he had a wank behind me. It was so degrading. And... I think in that moment, for me, something clicked in me that this is a job. That whole encounter was like, this is a job you can do. 
or this is a job now. This is just a job. And then another thing clicked in me in that I can actually endure this level of violence. And that was unfortunate that it wasn't what clicked in me was like, you don't have to endure this, but actually you have to. Because my entire nervous system was always in freeze mode. So it was those like fight, flight or freeze. It's like our trauma responses and also fawn. And mine would be going between freeze and fawn. So floppy, passive, just waiting for the thing to be over. Or freeze and endure is my main thing. Freeze and endure. And that's always been where my body goes to with trauma. Fight or flight weren't accessible to me. So it goes freeze and fawn. Freeze is the closest to death. It's what happens when animals are attacked. They think they're going to die and they just freeze and completely, they don't aren't even conscious when the death happens to them. And then you've got fun and then you've got fight or flight or where you're, you're more activated. You're more able to move. Um, but for me, that was cut off and I was only able to freeze or fawn. Um, so on that bed, I totally froze and endured and waited for it to be over. And um, the more something happens to us, the more, this is kind of, garbled, I'm sorry, but the more something happens to us, the more the neural pathways for that behavior are laid down. So the more we're abused and have to f- endure something, the more we endure things. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, make, it, it makes perfect sense. Uh, like uh, what you describe is, uh, I can relate to that. It is uh, the societal grooming of uh, young women to prostitution, which is like a uh, all the norms and practices and the, what what is considered to be acceptable. Yeah. Grooming you into being someone who is uh, performing unwanted sex, some uh, sort of dubious benefit. Some, sometimes sometimes beneficial, like uh, some money, and sometimes not even uh, really beneficial. And uh, then I, it makes me to ask the question, uh, uh, whether there is a real uh, border or clear border, clear line between uh, trafficking and uh, voluntary prostitution, because uh, uh, many people would uh, read your book and uh, would say uh, she wasn't prostituted at, at a gunpoint. On the other hand, being prostituted uh, uh, as a teenager, seventeen years old, is uh, is trafficking by uh, you know by by definition of Palermo Protocol, uh, many many other many uh, legal frameworks of different countries. So, do you think that uh, border exists? Can you say who was trafficked and who was uh, was prostituted voluntarily, or it is some sort of uh, pers- uh, pers- uh, perception that can change over their life? Well, trafficking is the moving of somebody. Um, sex trafficking for the moving of somebody around for uh, to exploit them. Um, and I wasn't sex trafficked, but the pr- but prostitution exists on like a a spectrum. Um, so you have like, like this girl Anna who wrote a book called Slave. Um, she was sex trafficked. She was stolen off her street in London, brought to Ireland, brought to Galway, and then trafficked around Ireland for nine months before eventually escaping. Um, like she is the most black and white, you know, version of what trafficking is, um, literally taken off a street and being beaten up and raped and whatnot. Um, at one end, and then you have trafficking where somebody thinks they're getting a certain job and then they end up in prostitution or they're, they're paying somebody to bring them somewhere where somebody's bringing them somewhere 
to get a job somewhere and then they end up that it's prostitution or they know it's prostitution but then when they arrive in the country the terms are totally changed and it's a different person's in charge and and then they're being exploited um all the way down to me who voluntarily chose it but I don't see it really as voluntarily choosing anything because so much was happening at an unconscious level that was making me do this and um, I wasn't you know people say it was a free choice and I was like it was a, it was a choice I don't really know if any choice is free because no choices exist in a vacuum. Um, choices are informed by so much. So yes, it was a choice. It's a choice I don't remember making. I don't remember anything about it. But um, yeah, it was it was a free choice. But I wouldn't say I was sex trafficked. No, but like because oh, I because I wasn't sex trafficked. Okay. Thank you. Um, which means uh, sometimes you can uh, make the difference at the individual level, but uh, uh, you cannot uh, like you cannot make one clear definition that uh, excludes uh, ever anyone from definition of trafficking. Like uh, it doesn't it doesn't work in macro. The thing is that like everybody's being, no matter whether you're being sex trafficked or choosing it or whatever. And um, the pool is the same. So people are sex trafficking to prostitution. And sometimes the argument's like, oh, you know, sex tra don't conflate sex trafficking and sex workers and this bullshit. No, like, you, you said very clear. Some women, uh, uh, some women uh, meet the very precise definition of trafficking. Even, even I have a friend who was uh, kidnapped, kidnapped from Eastern Europe and uh, trafficked to Israel. To, to be forced, forcibly prostituted. So this is clear cut case. In many cases, there's the gray, some, somewhere in the gray area. On one hand, it was voluntary. In other hand, something something clearly illegal happened there. Illegal under any law, like uh, like uh, like being a child. <laughs> anyway, so thank you. I I I guess we should uh, keep living with this sort of doubt and clearance about the definitions of prostitution and trafficking. Either way, it's like everybody's everybody it's like everybody's being exploited in the one place, regardless of how they got there. And the men don't care. The men aren't going around being like, oh no, that's definitely a, a brothel. I'm not gonna go there. Or that's clear and no, this is a very important point of view that Panthers don't come and make they definitions, <laughs> analyze uh, ask themselves. No. So they don't they even prefer someone to be the woman to be exploited. But by the way, I wanted to ask you before, why did you call the book Any Girl? It's kind of like what you just said. Like it could happen to anybody. What happened to me? It was a case of um a case of chance, I suppose, and really, really bad luck. And that can happen to anybody. Bad luck is a weird way to put male violence, but what I mean is, like, it could happen to anybody. Could have been raped in that park. Anybody could have gotten involved with that man. Um, and many do. And as you said, the story isn't... You can't say what, what can't, won't happen to my daughter. Um, because my daughter isn't poor. You know, I'm protecting her. She's got a stable family. She's not in care. She's not addicted to drugs. That won't happen to my daughter. But, like, none of those things apply to me either. And that, that's why I called it to any uh, called it any girl because nobody's immune to um, male violence and exploitation. Nobody, just like nobody's immune to domestic abuse, to being with an abusive partner. <laughs> There's nothing about us that we have to change to avoid that as women. Mia, your uh, 
and the Rachel Moran struggle and struggle of many other women, it led to a huge uh, victory. Your country was the seventh in the world to adopt uh, a law banning the purchase of prostitution. But by the way, mine was the eighth. So when it happened in Ireland in the in the 2017, right? Yeah. So what were your expectations of the law? What did you think uh, the law would change? Well, the law is is the Nordic model, so crim- uh, the equality model, I think they're calling it now. It criminalizes the purchase of sex. It decriminalizes the sale of sex. But brothel keeping remains um, a crime. So it means that the onus is now put on the exploiter instead of the victim. And it doesn't matter who you are in the sex trade, you're not going to be criminalized or what you're doing. You're not going to be criminal or why you're doing it. You're not going to be criminalized. But the, it, it makes the target of the situation of prostitution be the men who are the <clears throat> demand and who fund it and fuel it and are the reason it exists, which is amazing to have. It's a really radical law. Okay, so what were your expectations? What will happen? And uh, by the way, I can ask also the next question that they wanted to ask, uh, whether those expectations were met. Yeah. So the law is um, five, six years old now. My expectations were very high that it would end the sex trade in Ireland. (laughs) Expectations is probably the wrong word. Aspirations or hopes, I suppose, hopes would be that it would work or that it would not work, but that it would... um, it would it would end the sex trade, but it needs to be uh, the men need to be prosecuted, and they need to be arrested, and they need to be sought, they need to be um, found by the police, which is difficult. And it's difficult to prove that sex has been paid for. So there's still training and stuff going around, going on with the police and whatnot around that. I don't know if my expectations have been met because I don't think we're going to end the sex trade in my lifetime anyway. And I I am also aware that laws take a while to integrate and to be enacted and to happen. And because prostitution is such a stigmatized thing, the ideas around prostitution is so wrong about what's actually happening is that when we're the police like, and I don't really know much about this now, but the police are just human people who also have the ideas and uh, that the rest of society has around prostitution. That there may not be a will to go after the men because we've got such a forgiving um, attitude towards men in general, but also men who pay for sex. We've got such a forgiving attitude towards them. I don't know because my expectations were like sky high. So like it's too soon. <laughs> it's too soon to kind of to kind of say. But prosecutions are happening. I met with a few members of the police a while ago who work in this unit, the prostitution unit, and they are there's three of them and they're just incredible people and they're so passionate and they really care about the women. And um I think things are 100% changing. I just think it takes time. But I would like to see more men being arrested. 100%. I'd like to see... And the police are doing that. They're doing raids. They're, oh, raids is the wrong word. They're doing welfare checks on the women. So I'm using the, the wrong language there completely. They're not raids. That's just what other people call them. Um, they're doing welfare checks on the women. And um, they do this texting thing where they text them and, and check in on them and so on. But I would like to see the men be arrested. Um, but they, they at least do days of action. But I suppose I'd like it to be more of a priority. I guess. I mean, I don't. I don't really know much about how it's being policed. To be honest with you, it's not my area. Yeah. Uh, are there any governmental or societal or other forces in Ireland who oppose the law? 
trying to uh, trying to abolish it, maybe if they exist, so what? They? There's um yeah, there's an organization called the Sex Workers Alliance of Ireland who would like decriminalization of the sex trade. I don't know if there's any other organization in Ireland. I think is there anyone else? Oh, Amnesty. Yeah, Amnesty Ireland. Amnesty International, I think, unfortunately voted, but it was a very close um it was a very close vote. I was I was there that day. Um this is years ago, 2015, 16 or something. I can't remember. But either way, um that's frustrating, but um considering they're a human rights organization. But I think that's it. Our Amnesty in Ireland, Amnesty Ireland and the Sex Workers Alliance uh, Sex Workers Alliance of Ireland. Sorry, it's hard to say that. And um, they would lobby for decriminalization. And uh, who are the sex work clients of Ireland? Uh, are the people who are involved in the sex trade or just the people who support the sex trade? They would be. I think they are people. I mean, I don't know. I don't really know what they do anymore. Um, they had a director who was involved in the sex trade who is now not their director anymore. Um, I'm really not sure who they're made up of. Uh, or what they do. They definitely have some people involved in the sex trade involved with them, but I'm not sure who they are. I really don't know. It seems to me like they're just a Twitter account at the moment. I've, I've, I've no idea. Okay, so imagine yourself uh, debating them now and uh, they tell you, we have to make uh, the decrim people. Okay? We have to make everything legal to protect people in prostitution. Police persecution of any party in the sex industry, including the punters and the third-party profiteers, endangers them. And the stigma endangers them as well. So what would you tell them? Um, I don't know if i tell them anything. I'd just be like, well, I, I don't really know if I would even talk to them because it's like we don't have the same, we're not looking for the same thing, what's best for all women. Obviously legalizing a harmful thing is not good for all women. That's obvious. I don't need any, I don't need to look up statistics. I Legalizing rape is bad for women, so let's not do that. Do you know what? Like, that's the same thing. Um, the same for decriminalization. So I, I don't I don't know if I tell them anything. There's also probably very little point telling them anything because they wouldn't listen to me anyway. Um, but I tell them, like, my aim is what's best for all women, not just women in the sex trade, but that's our priority, obviously. But it's for all women. It's for the society we want to have. It's for the contribution we want to leave. It's the legacy we want to leave. It's the kind of world we want to have for our daughters. Is it a world where we say it's okay for men to pay their way inside a woman's body or not? They're saying, oh, enabling this patriarchal structure is good for women. I'm saying, well, obviously it's not. It's obviously not. Okay, yeah. Uh, I agree with you. You know, maybe we should not delve uh, too deep into uh, all the statistics. We should say uh, we should not legalize prostitution, just like rape, just like slavery, just like domestic violence. It is not a matter of reports and stuff. This is uh, I mean, it's there. You can look at it. I mean, I, I'm not going to start telling them stuff. Obviously, decriminalization and legalization absolutely massively explode the sex trade and that's not what I want. I don't want men to feel more entitled to go and pay for sex. We're talking about two different things. They're saying paying for sex is fine and I'm saying it's not fine. So obviously they're going to say, well, this is this is a better option and I'm going to say it's not. Speaking of entitled men, the website Escort Ireland. I, I, I have heard that these days you are promoting the petition against the website Escort Ireland where uh, those entitled men can uh, choose a woman in prostitution, rate her performance, uh, 
leave their offensive comments. So te- please tell them more, our audience, what does the site do and why you are against it. Um, Escort Ireland is a prostitution site and it's founded by a convicted pimp called Peter McCormick who is an REC officer in Northern Ireland and his son is also a convicted pimp, um, Mark McCormick and he started Escort Ireland in the 90s when prostitution, it became illegal to solicit for sex so it became illegal to advertise so he wasn't able to advertise his brothels in the back of magazines anymore or in phone boxes or whatever. Yeah, it's a place where men go. They can look up their the escort they want. They can look up the town or the city they're in and find the escorts that are there. They can look at their the things the woman lists off as things she'll do or whoever's writing the ad for her because obviously we don't know. And it says things like she'll do anal or she'll do uh, French kissing or oral without a condom or whatever. Um, so there's a big long list of stuff or a very small list, whatever. And you can look at photos of her. You can look at her statistics, so her breast size, whether she's got pubic hair or not, et cetera, et cetera. And her age, et cetera, her nationality or the one that's claimed to be. And he could read reviews that other men have written of their experience with this woman. And in these reviews, they uh, give stars out of five for things like appearance, location, physical appearance, location, overall satisfaction, value for money. And then they can leave, they can put a thumbs up or thumbs down, would recommend or would repeat, sorry, would repeat or wouldn't repeat. And how long they were there for, whether it was 30 minutes, an hour and how much they paid is all listed there. And then they can leave a review or they can leave a comment saying like, I had a great time with whoever, she's wonderful, lads, you know, treat her well, you know, this kind of comment. They can say whatever they want. They might say like, she clearly didn't want to look at me. She kept her eyes closed the whole time. There was people knocking out the door. There were male voices in another room. When I got there, it wasn't the same woman who, who was on the phone. Suddenly she had no English. It wasn't the same girl as those in the pictures. She could only say English. She could only use English words for like... Oh, and doesn't want to look at him sound like clear signs of trafficking. Yeah, doesn't want to look at me. It doesn't, didn't open her eyes once, didn't look at me. I kept saying no, would only use her hand. I kept pretending that I was inside her when really she was using her hand. But then he went on anyway, this guy, this particular guy had sex with her anyway. Um, she would only, she kept saying things like no extra. She would only have language for sex related terms. She had no English for anything else. She wanted me in and out within a few minutes. She kept saying, come now, come now. All signs that a woman does not, at the very best, is not happy in the situation. At worst, she's been forced there. Um, but the men don't care. They go ahead and then they, because they paid, and then they leave their review afterwards. Uh, in addition to the obvious, uh, you know, the illegal nature of this website, does it, uh, can it cause any harm to the particular women mentioned on the site? Yeah, totally can. So their pimper trafficker would be watching their reviews. The pimper trafficker writes the writes the thing for them, takes photos of them, puts them online. And there might be, um, they might have several profiles for one particular woman to create um, a sense of variety and you know choice or whatever for the men. And they write the the ads and so on. And then if the woman is getting bad reviews or getting low stars or whatever, she's obviously beaten up or raped or things get worse for her. 
So it's really dangerous for the women involved. Does the site offer any positive value to women in prostitution, like uh, the option to advertise themselves or filter punters? Um, well, it depends on the woman who's being advertised. If she's there, like I was, then of course I could filter punters. But like filtering punters is like, you have no idea really, because a man just rings you up. And then he says, are you working now or where are you based? And then you say, yeah, I'm not working today. I'm working tomorrow or whatever. And then you arrange to see him. And then you hope you get a, a sort of a good vibe on the phone. That's kind of how it works. The only good thing about EI is that they have a private message board for women. I think they still do. They might not. I don't know. Where it's just for advertisers. But the issue is that the pimps who run the site are fully aware. They can read all of this stuff. So that's not good for the women. The women need to have their own separate space where they can talk to each other about punters or about whatever. Um, but yeah, filtering or screening punters, like that certainly wasn't a thing when I was involved. I don't know what that would even would be. Um, maybe things are different now because of smartphones and stuff. But like you still don't know who you're gonna sh- who's going to be behind the door when you go to a hotel room or someone's house. You don't know how many men are going to be there. If it'll be the same guy who rang you, you, you know, you just don't know. You have no idea. Uh, just uh, maybe a naive question: uh, Why it is so uh, so difficult to to take down the site that in, the law in Ireland prohibits the advertising of sexual services? So yes. Why do we need the petition and battle and the support, uh, international support when uh, it can be just it, it can just uh, be taken down, right? Yeah, no, it's not as complicated as that. It's not as easy as that, maybe. So I mentioned um, the Justice Minister in May uh, specifically about this website, and she said, like, they'll just they'll just pop back up again. But the the first thing to say is that this website works out, is outside the jurisdiction. So they're in Spain. I think they might be in London again now. I don't know. They move around. They were in Spain the last time I checked. And um, so they operate outside the jurisdiction. So it's not. Irish laws don't govern that website then because they're in Spain. So it needs to be an international thing as opposed to But uh, maybe they can they can block the access to the site. Well that's what I would that's what I want to happen. I want them to work with um internet providers to uh block access to that website. Just the way just the way that has been done and can be done. She did say they'll pop up and their internet like geniuses yeah internet geniuses sorry computer geniuses it geniuses so internet geniuses you know what i mean so they can just um they could replicate that website in a day and have it up again with no difference happening and i understand that but we just need to uh, i know it's complicated but we just need to start something and the justice minister has committed to action on this website um so that's great but we just need to hold them accountable to taking some action or doing something about it because it's just left on the back burner and as long as that website is there that website holds a monopoly over the whole of the sex trade in Ireland. So if that's gone, the sex trade, we just would crumble and it would come back again. They'd find another way to come back up again. But then we could just block that one. Do you know, it would be like um, whack-a-mole. We need to find a way to interrupt their activity, this website, with everything we can. So if it's just, if it's getting the internet service providers to block the website and they pop back up again and then we block that one, do you know, fine. Like any way to interrupt their activity. So what what can we do as uh, Philia for this petition against okay. this website? 
So we needed to get attention. We needed to advertise it or share it as much as we possibly can to get as much international attention as possible so that we can show the Irish government like this is a thing and people support this and you're not allowed to let this be on the back burner. Thank you. We will surely do it. So before we finish, any message for our listeners? Um, I don't know. I think um, one of the things that I'm thinking about a lot is how we can amplify survivors. So by their books, by my book, by Rachel's book, by Hannah's book, Slave, by the book for other people. And I like to do that because, you know, people might be like, oh, yeah, I'll get that book. And then they never do. So I just buy the book for people. Um, And I think to treat survivors as equals, what you said earlier about like the public can be kind of like separate from survivors of the sex trade. And I've noticed that in my own life, people in my own life. It's like it's too dark or it's too. Yeah, it's too dark. It brings up something for them. that They're like, I don't want to be associated with that. And I embody that for them, you know, in a way, even though they might love me and like me and all the rest of it. So, uh, yeah, I'm kind of going on a tangent here, but sometimes the organisations, I'm not talking about Philly, I just mean in general, uh, in my work, you kind of get treated as a survivor. So you're like, tell us your story and that's all your role is. Whereas I am so much more than just my story and it's replicating the objectification of survivors if we're just our story in how we engage with those organisations. We're like, it's infantilizing. So if anybody's listening who works in an organisation, I would like always invite people to just check in on how 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 are we organising with survivors of the sex trades? And how does that sit with the sex trade survivor? Because in all my years of campaigning, nobody ever asked me, how are we getting on? How are we doing with how we work with you? For example... I never even got, uh, nobody ever even said to me, are you okay for expenses? These are all well-funded people working in their jobs with a well-funded campaign. And I was there taking days off work to go to meetings and stuff. Days off my crappy paid job. And nobody ever said to me, are you okay for expenses? How can we resource you to do this work? It was just kind of expected of me to show up to these things or expected of me to tell my story without being resourced. And that's something really important, I think, for anybody working with sex rights survivors to to remember that make it be a collaboration and make it be a relationship rather than a, oh, we'll get her to come in and do that. Because that has that has been kind of my experience, which has been pretty gross, to be honest. I don't really know what else I'd say to anybody listening. Buy the books, buy survivors. Um, don't be afraid of going into the dark places and amplify survivor voices as much as you can. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you so much for this enriching conversation. Thank you, Sam. Yeah. Hope hope to meet you someday, maybe if you like conference. Okay, so hey, all the best with the petition and then we will distribute it as uh, as much as we can. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks, Lula. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, dear listener, for tuning in. We are incredibly grateful to all the women who donate their time and their effort to create this podcast. That includes our guests, our interviewers, and our editors. You can find us on your favorite listening platforms like Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. 
just search for Filia Podcast. Please help us reach even more women. You can do that by subscribing to our show, by sharing this podcast with your friends, with your family, and with your co-workers, and by leaving us a positive rating and review. Filia organizes the largest annual grassroots feminist conference in Europe. We would love to see you there. You can support our work by joining the Friends of Philia scheme, by giving a solidarity ticket so that even more women can join our conference, and by subscribing to our newsletter. Please take a look around our website, philia.org.uk, to find out more. Together, women make magic happen, and we can't wait to be in touch with you.